Hello, ladies, and welcome to another exciting episode on the Ask With Confidence podcast. We are so glad you're joining us today and hope you leave this episode feeling empowered to take on your most difficult conversations. I'm your host, Katherine Kanaki. I'm a nurse, mediator, and the chief operating officer at the American Negotiation Institute, and I am passionate about helping women like you get the most out of your conversations and get ahead in life. Before we start, is negotiation a critical part of what you do? Do you need to resolve conflict and persuade at work? If so, check out our website to learn more about our negotiation workshops. We've traveled the country working with professionals just like you, and we would love to work with you too. Check out the link in the description to learn more. So today we have Becky on the show. Becky, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. Well, we are excited you're here. Why don't you start by telling the audience a bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. So I am currently a professor at Youngstown State University, and I specifically focus on leadership, but I do some more organizational behavior type stuff. And within sort of the world of of leadership, which includes things like influence, I've gotten into the imposter phenomenon. And that's sort of this other part of my, my research domain that I'm quite excited about. And so those are the things that I really focus on, leadership and the imposter phenomenon. Wonderful. And for the audience, Becky was a recommendation from a previous guest, Brooke Gosdog. She recommended Becky because of her fantastic work on the imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon. So I'm really excited to talk about that because that tends to be something that more women seem to experience. So we're going to get started with this awesome episode talking about leadership and women in leadership particularly. So the first thing we're talking about is influence and social power. Tell us more about that. What do you mean by that? Well, it's sort of, I would suppose, more of like a broader concept than leadership. Leadership has other pieces and, you know, included in it, dealing with resulting in like change for the greater good. However, the leadership process itself has everything to do with influence and social power. That said, everybody uses social power to influence, even if they're not in a leadership role. So it's a little bit broader than just if we were to be talking specifically only in leadership. And the reason why I say that is because. I want what we talk about in this podcast to be relatable to, to everyone because it is. It, literally, we're talking about how people navigate their social world. So within a social domain, how do you be more effective? And that's something that I think is important to everyone. Generally speaking, when we talk about influence, it's just to affect something or someone. So typically, we're talking about influencing other people's thought processes or behaviors, um, but it could be much larger than that. But that's probably what we we most tend to talk about. And when we attempt to influence other people, we essentially could be met with three different reactions. Simply, people can resist our influence attempts, right? So it's as if nothing happened or they're just saying no. More commonly, we see people complying with influence attempts. So meaning that I will do something because of some external reward not because I'm terribly enthused about it or not because I identify with this request, but because it makes sense for me to do this. What we want to work towards is the reaction of commitment. So getting people really enthused, really excited to carry forth this influence attempt that you're trying to make. So getting people being more disidentifying with, with that influence attempt. So doing the thing, changing the thought process or doing the behavior because they're just generally excited. It's internally motivating to them. So again, we can influence in all of our life domains. We're not talking specifically within a work context. It doesn't have to be specifically within negotiations, so we can understand the applicability there. But generally speaking, anytime we are in these social situations, these interpersonal interactions, when we want to influence, 
So we have to sort of take a step back and talk about social power. So when we talk about social power, it's the potential that allows us to influence. So we literally cannot be influencing without social power. And social power is a really, it's an interesting notion because it's very attractive. Whenever we talk about this, people's ears sort of perk up and they want to learn more about it. And for whatever reason, it's this very socially motivating concept. It's sexy. It's you know something that we all want. But the very interesting thing about social power is that it's something that people give to us. So we sort of have this perception, and I'll use that word a lot. We have this perception that that power is inherent. Some people have it, some people don't have it. But really what it is, is that anybody who has power over us, we've chosen to give them that power for various reasons. So there are different sources of social power. Some are stronger. I call them more potent sources of social power. Some are a little bit weaker. But in any case, any of those sources are given to us. There's so many gems in that, and I want to unpack a lot of that. I love what you said about making sure that this is applicable for everybody, not just people in leadership positions, because it really is something we want everybody to be able to be successful at. One of the things that you said is that social power allows us to influence. How do we get that social power? So there's a loaded question. There's a few ways I think I can address that. First is to say what power is and what it isn't. So again, as I mentioned, it's a potential. So it's not an actual use. We're not talking about a behavior or an action. It's a potential. Actually, it lives in our perceptions. So the way that others perceive us is how we gain our power. So there's a perception that an individual controls an important resource. And because that person controls that resource, I'm going to give them power because I perceive that resource to control something that's important to me achieving my personal goals. So that's sort of one way of looking at it. Another way, and probably the easier way to conceptualize it, is to look at these personal sources and positional sources of power. So there are different types we can talk about within them, but I think the broader concept is that there's these personal sources of power that are derived from people's unique personal attributes or skills. So for example, if I respect or idolize, adore, trust, like, or otherwise view that person as the knowledgeable person or the attractive person or the respectable person, I'm going to give that person power. And those are personal sources of power are more potent. They're stronger. When I am influencing and using my personal sources of power to influence, I'm more likely to get commitment as a reaction to that influence, as opposed to if I were using personal sources of power. So personal sources of power are derived from usually formal roles. So for example, if you are holding a particular rank in an organization, or you have a job title like, for example, police officer, within a social system or society, we tend to give those positions power just because we just agree on that. We agree that these roles hold power, but this is not as strong of a power. So if I'm only relying on my positional source of power, I might get people to comply with my request. I'm not necessarily going to get them to be committed. There are other ways outside of holding a specific position where we use sort of these lesser forms of power, and they're associated with giving people rewards or essentially intimidating folks and making them feel like we can harm them, penalize them, punish them in some way, which is really the lowest source of, of power. So that can get somebody to comply within the moment because they're really not interested in you know, being harmed. But long-term, 
it really sort of leaves this negative experience and you no longer have personal power with that individual. And so we really are getting these lesser reactions like immediate compliance, but we really don't get any type of long-term commitment. So there's different ways, there's different sources of power, but really the strongest source of power that we really should be working towards cultivating are these personal sources of power. I love that you mentioned that you might get some commitment or initial commitment with that lesser source of power, but just like we teach in the fear response, when you're not using your your prefrontal cortex, which is where all your logic and reasoning is, there's more of that issue with compliance after the conversation happens. So even if you might get a yes in that moment, getting that follow through is really hard to do. So a very important part. I love what you mentioned about personal power. What are the things that we can do to enhance that or make that more effective? So I love that you asked that question because, I mean, that's the million dollar question that we all want to work towards. One related concept that's really important is called a blind spot. And blind spots in general, and we talk a lot about this in leadership, but these really are applicable, again, in any social domain. They're basically, they're the gap between how I think I'm being perceived and how other people actually perceive me. Hi, this is Katherine Kanapke. I'm the Chief Operating Officer at the American Negotiation Institute, and we have some exciting news for you. Our new online course will be launching on January 13th, 2020. Over the past few years, we've traveled the country teaching professionals in procurement, sourcing, and sales the keys to effective negotiation. We've taken all of the lessons from those workshops and put it into this powerful course. This course will provide you and your team with a powerful set of strategic tools that you can use to get the best deal for your company. At the end of the program, you'll have more confidence, more skills, and we'll get better deals in the process. Remember, class starts January 13th, 2020. We hope to see you there. Check out the website to learn more. And now, back to the show. So I can have an intention to put out a certain persona or to express certain values. And that could, again, be my intention. But other people can view me much different than that. So that could go wrong for a number of different ways. Maybe we don't have the social competence to be able to deliver our message in the appropriate way, or maybe there are some biases in the way other people are interpreting the message that we're trying to get out there. In any case, people, in order to cultivate these personal sources of power, they really have to work towards minimizing these blind spots, meaning that they have to be very attuned to the way that others are perceiving them. They have to be very perceptive, astute in the way that others are viewing them. So going on that, how do we minimize those blind spots? Yeah, so there are some things we can do, but they I will admit they're uncomfortable. So I always use this idea of a social mirror. And I'm not the first person to talk about, you know, social mirrors. There's back from, I think, the early 1900s, Cooley talked about the looking glass self. But basically the idea that we have mirrors everywhere around us and they are in the shape of other people's reactions towards us. So we have to take that feedback that others give us in an indirect way and really internalize that. So scanning our environment for how others are, what is their body language towards us? What is their tone of voice towards us? Doing things like asking follow-up questions to make sure that they truly understood what we were trying to say or if the message sort of got miscommunicated. And I say it's uncomfortable because sometimes we get information that we don't want to hear. Sometimes we get information that says other people don't look at us so favorably. And 
yeah, that's uncomfortable, but there's no other way to know the source of the problem. So I talk about this in the analogy of imagine if you had spinach in your teeth the entire day, you had spinach in your teeth and you were with your best friend and you guys were walking, you're in all these social places, you're talking to all sorts of other people and you're smiling and having great conversation. You get to the mirror, you know, to a bathroom and you look in the mirror and you smile and you see the spinach in your teeth. I mean, your first reaction is probably like, oh, dang it, like this kind of sucks, right? Uh, but then, you know, you're probably, your second reaction is going up to your friend and saying, why didn't you tell me I had spinach in my teeth? Well, probably because your friend felt uncomfortable to say, you know, maybe, maybe she felt a little bit like, oh, that's going to embarrass her. That smaller embarrassment of receiving that information that we don't want to hear actually can alleviate some of these larger embarrassments that can have grander effects, right? Greater, greater impacts on our lives. So, First of all, scanning your environment for the indirect uh, feedback, but really being open and soliciting feedback from sources that aren't worried about being kind to you. So that's another thing I oftentimes tell my students is seek out feedback from people that maybe don't like you very much. So really going to these sources that don't feel very good to you and really just get into that and figure out what is it that they're seeing? How are they perceiving me? Maybe asking them direct questions or again, if you're not in a position to do that, scanning for these indirect cues that can give you information about yourself, about, rather I should say, about how other people are perceiving you. Fantastic. Are there some blind spots that are more common in this kind of area or what kind of blind spots are we on the lookout for? Oh, well, that's an interesting question, specifically, you know, within the domain of, of gender differences is women being perceived as maybe too masculine. That's one way that We can talk about these like common blind spots. So what we know is that, of course, this is common knowledge at this point, there are sort of these gender rules that tell us what we should do and what what we ought not to do, right? So we know that men should be agentic. They should be assertive, competitive, independent. Women should be communal, warm, kind, supportive, right? What's interesting is that the, the research doesn't say that women shouldn't be like men, but Rather, it's that women should not be controlling or arrogant. These masculine traits that are not very attractive, no matter what, whether it was a man or a woman. But what we know is that men have more leniency when they behave in those ways. So men can be more controlling and arrogant, and there's not as much backlash as there is when a woman is more controlling and arrogant. So there's actually more of a, there's a harsher response to women that act in that way. So if we want to be in these positions that require us to demonstrate competence, for example, so leadership roles require us to demonstrate competence, that sometimes can come off, if it were delivered in the wrong way, as arrogance. So maybe looking at how people are viewing my demonstration of competence and really trying to pay attention if if it's coming across as arrogant, for example, or if I'm trying to be assertive, is it coming across as controlling? Having the understanding that there's less leniency for women in these judgments. So people make harsher judgments for women when they're deciding if it's assertive or controlling versus arrogant or competent, for example. Oh, I love that. So that brings the question, how can we be influential and have this social power if there's also this underlying blind spot or social acceptance that women, quote unquote, should not demonstrate these more masculine traits? So in order to be more influential, really just, it's just a practice of being what I call other focused. So being, you know, attuned to what other people, the information they're telling us, whether directly or indirectly, 
And that really comes from having like a learning orientation. So we have to be okay with being wrong. We have to be okay with taking on different challenges and failing at those challenges and just taking those as learning opportunities instead of just an all out failure. I guess what I'm trying to say is we have to first develop ourselves as these socially competent individuals. And the only way to do that is to learn from our environment, to really learn about the way we're being perceived, to learn about what other people care about, to learn about the biases that other people have, the biases that we have. It's just taking all of the social information so that you can become more socially competent. When, When I say social competence, it's really two pieces. There's a perceptiveness piece. So being able to accurately read a situation. So knowing your biases, checking your biases at the door, and reading a a social situation for what it is so that you can be as accurate as possible. And the second piece is this behavioral flexibility part where, okay, now having this knowledge, I can actually shift my behavior and deliver my message or my influence attempt in a way that's going to be received most favorably by those that I'm trying to influence. So that, again, requires us to just take in as much social information as we can. And that includes not just, again, not just for other people, but also learning about ourselves. So we need to have that self-awareness piece if we want to be socially competent. I love it. And I'm going to steal that behavioral flexibility term. I think that's a great, a great way to explain it. And just like in negotiations, it's important to be flexible in all aspects. So that way you can adjust and adapt. And finally, I want to get to our topic about imposter syndrome. How does that tie in to our ability to influence and and lead? And I guess, first of all, what is it? Sure. I always make this mistake of calling it the imposter phenomenon when I'm talking to like any sort of like mass media outlet or, you know, in in non-academic settings, because for whatever reason in academia, it's called the imposter phenomenon. And outside of academia, it's called the imposter syndrome. But in any case, we're talking about the imposter syndrome. It's basically a belief that I'm an intellectual phony. So I've only gotten into whatever position I'm in because I tricked people into thinking I'm more competent than I actually am, or I got lucky or by chance, or uh, somebody pitied me or like gave me an easier road than they gave everybody else. So it's this belief that I actually am not as competent as my title or my role or what other people looking at me might think. And how does it tie into our ability to lead or to be in the workplace or just our everyday lives? What is its impact there? So there's, there are many impacts um, for the imposter syndrome. The, the first thing I will say, sort of how it relates to some of the conversation we were having prior is that First of all, it is a blind spot, right? It's a, the imposter syndrome we're talking about, a literal blind spot of gap between how I view myself and how others view me. The way that it's sort of different is that it's a perceived blind spot and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's accurate. And in many cases, when we're talking about the imposter syndrome, it's not accurate. The person isn't actually less competent than other people think they are. They just believe that. But I guess more broadly, it ties into what we were talking about before because As I mentioned, some of these ways to gain social power, overcome these blind spots, is to be open to mistakes, is to have a growth mindset, to allow ourselves the self-compassion that allows us to fall down, get back up again, learn from that fall, try it again in the next iteration, and just continuously grow and develop. The imposters sort of have an inability to do that. So imposters, what we know about them is that it's a perfectionism that actually inhibits you from being better. So that sense of I have to be perfect, I have to demonstrate myself 
as having zero cracks and zero flaws will actually inhibit somebody from taking on new challenges from sometimes they'll they'll give up on a project because they'll work so hard on it and it'll never reach that point where it's perfect enough to be sent out into the world in essence there's these inhibiting behaviors that imposters will do because of this perfectionism so it's it's quite problematic it's exactly the opposite of what i said people should be doing in order to cultivate more personal sources of power so that's that's definitely a tie in there and other ways that it affects our work behaviors is that Imposters tend to sometimes stay in the shadows, so they won't do these extra role behaviors at work. So they'll do their in-role behaviors, meaning their jobs and their, their responsibilities that are part of their job, but they won't do anything above and beyond that. And oftentimes those above, above and beyond behaviors are the types of behaviors that get people recognized, that get people you know, in line for promotions, or can actually get somebody a mentor, which would be extremely helpful in the situation of an imposter. And also imposters tend to, they tend to not do these career striving behaviors. So again, they tend to not go after things that will help their career, like the bigger project or being more visible within their organization. So with imposter syndrome, with it being perceived, you know, it's our own personal blind spot, which you feel like this is true. It's very hard to see around. So how do we improve if we have imposter syndrome? So one thing is naming it, recognizing these thoughts in your brain and naming those thoughts and saying, you know, that's the imposter in me that's coming out. And once we're able to like point at it and name it and become more aware towards it, we can sort of put it in a box and try and sort of put it to the side and it'll try and make its way out of that box. But then we can do our best to to try and get it back in that box and close close the top of it. Um, So first thing is, is naming it. Second thing is I'm really big on telling people, don't compare yourself to somebody else's final product. And it's really honest in the day of, you know, the internet and social media, it's really, really, really tough not to do that because we see the shiny thing that's been completed and which probably took a lot of time and effort and mistakes and back and forth, many iterations, et cetera. But we see the final product and we tell ourselves, I can't be that. And because I can't be that right exactly now, I tell myself, I will never be that. So it's really important to recognize that when we are comparing ourselves to somebody else's final product, that it's an unfair comparison. And by doing that, we're always going to feel inadequate. We'll always feel like no matter what, even if I made it to that role, I'm still lesser than for some reason. So that's the second thing. And the third thing is really these self-reflective strategies. So when we see something that goes wrong, let's say in our own lives, do some reflection in the sense that we can understand what exactly went wrong. How would I have liked it to be different if I could redo this? So very specifically identifying the specific pieces that could have been different that would make you be more comfortable with the outcome. And lastly, if somebody else were to do this thing or make this mistake, how would I look at that mistake as opposed to how I'm viewing it if it were my own mistake? So these self-reflective practices, I think, could be really helpful. Fantastic. I love that you mentioned social media. I just had this conversation with somebody else who will be a guest in another episode, Tiffany Sutherland. And we were talking about the impact social media has. It can do some powerful things, but when it comes to imposter syndrome, it has a big impact there. So I think it's always important to recognize as social media is growing and the age of the internet is growing, uh, the impact that that has on our day-to-day lives. Now, this is just out of my own curiosity, but are there studies showing, you know, do people ever recover 
from imposter syndrome? Can you ever completely get rid of it? I will say that the research on the imposter phenomenon is it's relatively new. I mean, the, the, the term was coined in the late 70s, early 80s, and the research sort of just started taking off. There was some stuff on like, why do people feel the imposter phenomenon? But in terms of the effects of it and do people overcome it, there's really, there's limited research, particularly in the do people overcome it and the how do people overcome it. So we know a little bit more about the behaviors that it affects than we do the overcoming part. There's research that might suggest that it's not, it doesn't work exactly in the way that we assume it works. So for example, actually a paper that, that Brooke and I, a couple of the colleagues recently published, found that although you know, the imposter phenomenon is, tends to be seen more frequently, more prevalent in, amongst women, I should say, men actually react harsher to it. So though more women experience it, the men that do experience it are actually less capable at dealing with it. So that's something that was definitely surprising. You know, that's not something that we would have expected to find in terms of the reactions to feeling the the imposter phenomenon. But that's more hopeful also than we would have thought. So some of our initial thoughts as to why, or the reasons why we think we might have found that is that women, because we're constantly sort of trying to figure out, you know, what is my role here? How do I fit in? Being a little bit more empathetic, you know, some people might suggest that women have a higher level of emotional intelligence. We're just a little bit more socially competent. We could figure out, are just more able to, to navigate these social worlds, I guess you can say. So when there's a setback for female imposters, they can bounce back a little bit easier than when there is for male imposters. Another explanation is that because competence is within this gender norm for males and it's not for females, Oftentimes we look at that as a really negative thing, and generally it is. But in this case, if I feel incompetent as a female, I actually don't have to worry that much about backlash. But if I feel incompetent as a male, then I, now I'm acting outside of my gender norm. I'm not fulfilling these expectations that society holds of me. And this is actually more of a problem, right? For males might perceive that more as more of a problem. So when I say that it, there's, it's a little bit more hopeful, there's probably something in there. And again, the research hasn't quite caught up yet, but there might be something in there about women being able to experiment more in these roles where they have to be confident. So they, they have sort of the psychological freedom to fail a little bit more, if that makes sense. So maybe not so much the freedom in the way people perceive us, but having the, the psychological leeway, if, if that term makes any sense, to fail and try again. So that's where the research is saying that there's probably more to it than we know, and it might not all be bad. That is so fascinating. It's so interesting, and I can't wait for there to be more research. And please let us know as you find out anything more, whether or not people can get over imposter syndrome, or if it's just something that you can improve and kind of what that looks like. So I would, I would be excited to hear where that research goes, because that's so interesting. So I want to make sure that we kind of end on a positive note. What is the number one thing that you want to recommend to our audience to help empower them and help them in their difficult conversations? Yeah, absolutely. So the thing that I've become just really, really big on is this idea of uh, reframing the ways that we look at failure. I mean, that is our best classroom. There's no opportunity to learn other than failure, or at least nothing as great as failure. So instead of being afraid of it, sort of 
embrace it. I mean, these are good, these are good situations. So if you find yourself trying and, and not being able to complete what you're, you're seeking to do, use that as a learning opportunity, take that as a gift. And sort of in line with that is this, again, I, I know I talked about it before, but the seeking feedback from everyone, I really just can't emphasize that enough. The more it hurts, the better it is, I guess I could say. So taking these things like these failures and negative feedback and really taking them as a learning opportunity, because truthfully, those are the best things that can teach us how to be better, how to develop, how to grow. So if I can communicate one thing, that's the thing I'd like to communicate. I really just hope everybody can just be a little bit free to experiment with that mindset. I love it. That is, I love it. Brilliant. Now, before you go, because we are at time, why don't you tell the audience, remind them how they can get in touch with you, anything else that you want to share with them? Sure. So if anyone's interested to get in touch with me, I, so again, I work at Youngstown State University and I believe my contact information is on that website. And my name is Becky Badawi. So feel free, shoot an email over and I'd love to hear from you. Fantastic. And we will put all those links in the description. Becky, thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. Thanks again for being a listener of the Ask with Confidence podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you're enjoying the content, please subscribe and review. We want this podcast to reflect what you, the listener, are experiencing in your everyday life and your feedback will help us do just that. Again, thank you. And we hope you join us in the next episode.